Happy April Fools, Little Leaguers, and thanks for adding the 74th episode of Scoring at the Movies to your day. We travel back many years, and we analyze sports movies. And if you don't like spoilers, you better split right now. I'm the guy who has so far avoided being killed in a drive-by. So far. But if I had to die, I wouldn't mind so much if I got to wear a cool-ass green and gray uniform. Those uniforms are tight. Ryan Ellis. And here's the gambler who gestures wildly and ain't no good with kids. He's the one I call Big Papa, Chris Gregorio. I'm at least two of those three things, Ryan. I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, I will get you your money. You don't have to keep reminding me about it. I'm working on it, okay, man? I got a few irons in the fire. As soon as this podcast takes off, I'll get you the money. Just wait on that for a little while. I'm sure it'll happen. You did gesture a few times. Good for you. Way to I go. am part Italian. <laughs> you know the hands are coming out. What a weird performance Keanu gives in this movie. So unlike him, so unsweet like he usually is. Okay, really? He could be sweet in the movie, but a lot of the time he leans to be, well, leans. He's a scumbag. So unlike him. Keanu in this movie is the larval stage of the Keanu that we would see in Constantine and John Wick, of course, and even to a certain extent, Neo. I guess this character is not a badass by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a similar performance tone, I felt like. But I get what you're saying. In romantic comedy context, he suddenly becomes the sweetheart. Of course, we know Keanu is a real-life sweetheart, so it's hard not to Mm -hmm. give him credit for that. But yeah, it felt like a Constantini performance to me, for some reason, this movie. I haven't seen that movie since I saw it in the theater. You could be right about that. Okay, so a few pieces of business before we talk about Hardball itself. First of all, Chris has got a picture of Big Papa behind him. That's fun. No one can see it but me, but I'll mention it anyway. (laughs) A little visual humor for an audio medium never hurts, right? And also, Chris will be joining the ranks of the 40-year-olds in less than a week. So he's finally where he belongs, amongst the middle-aged. Happy birthday, Chris, you know. One of us. Yeah, I'm almost halfway to my actual mental age. In another 40 years, I'll be right where I was always meant to be. You can be mentally irregular like me. <laughs> Glad you're part of the team now. Instead of just physically irregular. <laughs> <laughs> right. And as for a beverage, I will give mine first because you asked before we started recording. And did. breaking news, it is Coke Zero and Crown Royal. Whoa! I'm really mixing it up here. If I was wearing a hat, it would have just been blown right off my head just then. <laughs> I'm out of CC, that's why. Ah, oh, fair enough. I've got myself a little milk stout this evening. Finishing off the last of the winter beers before it gets, hopefully, knock on wood, a little bit warmer. I thought you were going to say milk, which would be in honor of little kids. <laughs> Wish I could, but that much lactose would destroy me. If I could even down just straight up milk at this point, I don't even know if I could stomach it. While you sip, I'll set us up here. Hardball was released by Paramount 20 years ago on September 14th, 2001. Even though it was number one for two weeks, maybe it's a nice distraction so soon after 9-11, because it was only, was that, three days later? The movie did not succeed financially. It's weird, though, to be number one for two weeks and then not succeed. But then September, movies, anyway, you get the point. Right yeah, off the cliff. just there. dropped off pretty fast. But you've never seen it before this time. You watched it last night. I have seen this at least three times. Although I haven't seen the whole movie in quite a long time. I've seen clips of it. I've watched the funeral sequence for G-Baby. Spoiler alert, but we already said that. And the last bit when they are about to play the championship game on YouTube. Many times over. Always emotionally affects me. But what do you think of the movie as a whole? I legitimately enjoyed it. It's not long. I think the runtime's roughly 90 minutes, give or take a few. About an hour 45. Is it that long? Yeah, about that. That speaks to its favor, too, because I was going to say, we've watched movies that have felt like they were four hours long. For a movie that's not action-packed, it kept moving pretty well. So, not that feeling short is the epitome of good movie-making, necessarily. But pace is, though. Pace is very important, and that's what you're saying. Had a good pace. Yeah, good pace. I like Keanu. I think we both like Keanu as a general rule. Of course, Mm -hmm. man, Point Break is one of the greats of all time. 
in the correct role, I think he's really, really good. And I thought this was a role that suited him, even if it was a little bit more of a dour performance. And I thought a lot of the elements of the movie worked. But there were a lot of things. Why did they take this approach or why not flesh something out? Race relations is top of the charts in a movie like this and the ghettoization of minorities in America. Some really weird elements of this movie that felt like they were super shallow for some reason, where they might bore yeah. a little bit more investigation. The race thing, I think actually, and this isn't a criticism because this movie isn't about race. I don't know. It it's not. It touches on it, obviously. Most of the main characters, because you've got a whole team of black kids and their opponents are black. You've got a few of the black people, including the parents, obviously, through the movie. But the two top build stars, in fact, the three top build stars are white people. One's Keanu, then Diane Lane, and then John Hawks. Really good character actor. You know, he's been around. You've probably seen him in a lot of things without knowing his name. But John Hawks is Tiki. He's been around since the, I think, mid-80s. So he's been doing this a long time. And I mentioned Peanut Butter Falcon recently. I think when we did <laughs> yeah. Fighting for My Family, or Fighting with My Family. He's in Peanut Butter Falcon, which is a wrestling movie from that same year. We should cover that maybe this year or at least next. But he's been in a lot of good movies. He's been around for a long time. But they're the three top-billed actors. Then you get into the whole cast of the kids. So this probably overall is more of a black movie than a white movie because of that. But you said it's a race movie, and I don't really think it is because that doesn't really come up that much. It's not like they're calling him a honky. He certainly doesn't ever use the N-word. This movie probably should have been R-rated. These kids seem like the kind of kids that would be swearing. But they don't really. This is a PG-13 movie. By the way, I'm going to sound like a moron now, but for the longest time, until this viewing, in fact, when I saw this on Wikipedia and then put on the subtitles to confirm it, that they were saying, we're going to the shit. Really? Not the ship, as in championship. <laughs> so you caught that right away, didn't you? I, did, I yes. thought for the longest time it was, we're going to the shit, yo. We're going to the shit. <laughs> So there you go. I always wondered how this movie had a PG-13 rating when they said the word shit so often. But they're not saying that. I've given us an R rating on this podcast now. But that's one of the things I find to be a little disingenuous. These kids probably should have been swearers. They probably yeah. would have been Keanu's character. Forget the kids. He would have been a swearer. He's a degenerate through so much of this film. But they wanted the lower rating to get more of a box office, which they did for a little while. And that felt a little disingenuous to me. But as far as the race thing, I don't really feel like it is a race movie. It's yeah. cool there's a lot of black characters in it, and one became, or has become now, a superstar, Michael B. Jordan. But it's not really about that at all. It's more about, well, I guess at the end he says, what I've learned from you is the most important thing in life is showing up, which is a weird line. I'm not really sure that's the message of the movie, even though he says it is. But it's not really about them being black and him being white. I gotta disagree with you on that one. I know this is based on a book that I've never read. I have no idea what the context of that book is. But if they had cast it slightly differently, I would have agreed with you 100%. But the fact that, like you said, the three lead actors are three white characters, but more importantly, Keanu and, of course, Diane Lane, being the two role model figures, I suppose, in this movie, are both white folks. But all of the kids, I'm not just talking about on Keanu's team, I'm talking about in the classroom, I'm talking about in the projects, and I'm talking about the other teams, they are all African-American, 100% of them. Yep. You end up getting, whether intentional or not, the white man's burden kind of syndrome here where you've got a bunch of minority characters and we don't even know why or what their circumstances really are. We don't get a lot of backstory to any of these characters, but they've all been ghettoized. And then you have the Keanu Reeves character and Diane Lane character from two different perspectives, both coming in to try to save them from themselves almost because we don't really get any impression for the most part of these kids' parents being at all active in their lives, except for one or two scenes where the mothers briefly show up and maybe read Keanu a bit of a riot act here or there. But for the most part, it's those two white characters trying to drag these poor, underprivileged black kids out of poverty and in the circumstances in which they find themselves. Because of the way it did that casting, it's not like there's zero white people in projects, there's zero Latino people in projects. So they could have cast it in such a way that it didn't just shine a spotlight on it in the way that it did for me anyway. And I think you don't necessarily have to have the same conversation, but that was a little bit distracting for me just because it's 2021. And of course we've had all these things at front of mind now for the better part of at least a couple of years, if not longer than that now, right? With all of the race relations stuff that's been going on in the media. So that took me out of the rest of the plot of the movie a little bit, just that stark divide in characters, I guess, you know what I mean? So your problem is that he's a white savior. Slightly, yeah. And we've seen this in a lot of really good films that have been criticized for doing this, and maybe were then, but certainly have been since. Glory, 
Matthew Broderick is the white savior in that movie. The year after that, one of the great examples of this, Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves, which is a terrific movie. And I don't think that Costner is trying to slight the natives and make himself the focus, even though I know he's the focus. He's trying to make a movie about them, but he knows the way to access Hollywood and to make a big film is to put himself in the lead role. That probably doesn't get made if he doesn't do that. I didn't think of it that way, but I guess you're right. This is a white savior film in that sense from two different perspectives, from their coach and from their teacher, even though she has a lesser role than he does. Okay, I guess why I didn't think of this as a race film is because they don't seem to be battling about race. Glory's right. about race. Dances with Wolves is about race. And I could probably rattle off a lot of other films that are about that, where you have a white person in the center of it. And oh my God, they'll save the day. They have to save the day. I guess Connor O'Neill is saving these kids from a lot of things. I love the scene, actually, where he takes, I think it's Andre or Ray Ray, one of them home, right literally to his door rather than just to the projects yeah, themselves. And he says, what do you do for fun? Play baseball with you. The kid doesn't overplay it. The scene ends at that point. That's a really nice moment. I'd forgotten about that because I haven't seen the whole movie in so long. So I guess in that way, he's become a savior to them. That's a strong word, I guess. No, I know what you're saying because I don't think this movie necessarily sought to become a movie that comments necessarily on race relations. I 100% agree with that. This is me trying to apply 2021 lens, Chris, to a 2001 movie, which maybe is slightly unfair in and of itself. But still, 2001 is not 1970, right? With this fairly recent. Mm -hmm. If not about race, it's at least very specifically about class. And not just this one group of kids. I think the entire league is meant to be constituted of teams from this set of projects, right? That eight-team league that they play within. Cabrini Green in Chicago is where they're supposed to be from, and that's a pretty notorious project section of Chicago. Exactly. So if you're making a movie that focuses on this class divide, and it's not even like upper class necessarily versus lower class, Keanu Reeves' character is definitely not upper crust. He's lower class too. Yeah, even if he gets hooked into this via an investment firm. But when you only show the ghettoized element of the movie being this one race, it's almost like the casual conditioning maybe to expect that okay well you know african-american people in america all live in projects and even if you're poor like keanu at least you have your own apartment we shouldn't belabor the point anymore because i don't want to come across as like uber woke chris i'm not or anything it's one of the things that <laughs> stuck out to me one thing i did want to ask you because it's a question i've had of a couple movies it's one i definitely had with this one from a studio perspective again not knowing anything about the underlying novel i think it's meant to be like a factual book right that's based on real events yeah it's a book by daniel coyle nonfiction book hardball a season of the projects that john gatton's adapted he's the guy that also wrote coach carter which we thought was a damn good movie we did that, that last was year a damn good movie, yeah. not so good as summer catch which he did i think the same year as this not a fan of that one but he's a sports book adapter and i think this is maybe the best of those three although coach carter not coach carter's a better movie yeah but I have a softer spot in my heart for this one. I always have. But yes, it is based on a nonfiction book by Daniel Coyle. Okay, so the question I had for the movie, though, was who do you think the target audience was intended to be? Understanding that, yes, it felt like this movie was edited specifically to avoid an R rating, but then you have elements of the movie that felt incredibly adult in nature to me that kids mm -hmm. would just glaze over about, leaving aside all the relationship stuff. The violence of G-Baby getting killed and the emotional, and it was emotional, moment that that becomes with the shooting and the funeral. These are not elements of a movie that you would expect in like a Bad News Bears. We talked about that. It's kind of a similar outline of a movie. Or The Sandlot. Maybe The Sandlot's a better example. That is definitely a kid's movie. And there's sort of elements of that in this movie. But then you have this really deep and often very dark stuff that goes on here. Like Kofi saying, I didn't like... Um, a wrinkle in time because so-and-so expects her dad to come back and where I come from, they never come back. Even if true, and I'm not saying it is, but even if true, that's a dark statement for a kid to just throw out in a movie like this. Well, you're forgetting the bigger element is that the star of the movie has such a dark story in his own right. Yes. Connor O'Neill's whole story is pretty dark. He's a gambling addict. I'm going to give you two nutshells, all right? Hardball in a nutshell. If I had a choice between coaching kids and having my thumbs broken by loan sharks, then bye-bye thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true i'd make an ad up there i liked coaching kids i did it before when i was younger myself and i would do it again i've actually thought about it but i just thought that'd be funny the second nutshell how long until connor starts laying down bets at the kid's school where he's going to be working and he's gonna be praying for the nine-year-olds to cover the spread when they're playing soccer at recess uh. he is a gambling addict 
He might have cleaned himself up, but this is one of those movies that suggests if he just has an opportunity and a woman that seems to like him and kids he has to care about, which he's grown to like in a matter of days because he didn't like them through most of the movie and then suddenly he's a great coach to them and a great mentor to them. But this is somebody who's not going to get cleaned up that easily. He's going to bet on those soccer games at recess and he's going to get himself fired. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the Connor character because that was one of the things I wish they dug into more. But who did you think this movie was targeted towards? Kids. I think they're probably going for kids because of the fact they can relate to these kids. Even if they are black, they probably thought that white kids, and there's no reason they can't, could enjoy this movie in a Bad News Bears kind of sense. Yeah, for sure. Keanu was certainly a star coming off of The Matrix and other things he had done before. They probably hoped they'd get people even our age in to see the movie for that reason. And Diane Lane, the same day as this, by the way, the same weekend at least, this got released after 9-11. She had The Glass House. So a horror film... And a baseball film after 9-11, which wasn't deliberate. They obviously had planned to release these movies before that all happened. But she had two big hits, at the time at least, in the same weekend. So they're probably trying to go for the romance grab with the two of them. That's really barely skirted. The two of them have a bit of a flirtation. There is that one nice scene, and I know Roger Ebert talked about it a lot in the review he did for this film. Keanu goes to the school after he'd already had the date with her that didn't go well. They have an argument and everything. But she says, you're not here to ask me out? Am I supposed to be? Yeah. Ebert liked that touch. I thought I saw something there for a second. Probably trying to get the romance crowd with the two of them, the Keanu crowd, because he was a big name. But I think if you had to just buttonhole one thing, it would have to be the kids. But maybe they're trying to play to too many masters. What do you think the movie's for, then? I tend to agree with you, because I think if I had to pick, is this movie for 13 and younger versus adults and older teenagers? It does feel more of a kids-ish movie, for sure. This is a movie where I would love to get my hands on maybe the original treatments that got submitted to the studio or something for the script to see what did the screenwriter think this adaptation should be versus what did the studio turn it into to try to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. Because there are elements that felt like it was added in to be maybe edgier. The Diane Lane romance plot, the Elizabeth Connor romance plot, I thought was done pretty well because it wasn't overemphasized. It's kind of simmering, but he fails because he's a bit of a dick in the date. And then comes back, he's like, oh no, you kind of like me. Which is a little bit more of an authentic way of handling this than a lot of movies tend to do. And she kisses him, but that's as far as it ever goes. Right at the end, too. Not in that moment. That happens at the very end. And it's not like a deeply passionate, we're soulmates kind of kiss. It's now, maybe we have something here. Best of luck to you. I kind of like you kiss, right? And her character, even if it's not a huge role in the movie, does have a definite purpose for the movie, for the kids, beyond just being a love interest for Keanu, which is also nice this has been a pet peeve of mine, I think, almost back to the first movie we did, where you have female characters that have no reason for being in the movie except to be a love interest for the main character. This movie might not pass the Bechdel test, maybe, but she does have moments with the kids that are nice, and she does demonstrate why she exists in their lives and within the context of the movie, totally outside of baseball. But did they need to have things in this movie? Like the Michael B. Jordan character, Jamal, he gets kicked off the team. <laughs> the either or. Either you play baseball or you join a gang. There's nothing else. But not just that. I mean, yeah, that was dark too. The last we see of him, he's in the midst of a gang fight, but he gets kicked off the team. And I was 100% convinced that in the championship game, something would happen. He would somehow be allowed to play again. But no, we never see him play baseball again. We only see him as part of the gang raid on the projects at the end of the movie. And that's it. He doesn't even say anything. He just shakes his head at G-Baby and... Um, Kofi. Oh, and Kofi, yes. To get out of there because shit's about to go down. Are we meant to believe that Jamal is now just consigned to a spiraling life of gang violence? Until yes. This movie's saying it's either or. And they didn't know what Michael B. Jordan would become, but what an unfortunate fate for him. Because I haven't seen this movie its entirety in so long, I'd forgotten, because I knew he was in it, but I'd forgotten that he's not part of the movie for, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 minutes or probably more, really as far as a baseball sense goes. But he's good in this movie. I think all the kids are believable enough. Most of them never acted apart from this film. Some did movies here and there. But apart from Jordan, none of them really did much of anything. And none of them became stars that I can see, other than him. Although I wouldn't expect anyone to be the star that he has become, of course. No, yeah. But it's interesting that he's the one guy who doesn't stay on the team. Kofi quits at one point and then comes back, has the negotiation scene with Connor about all the things Kofi wants. But then Connor basically says, well, this is the way it's going to be. But it's a fun negotiation scene. G-Baby's such a cute little character. G-Baby ruled this movie. The charisma. Yeah, he might be the real star of this movie. That kid oozed charisma. I love that kid. This was Dwayne Warren's first movie. He was in something called La Femme Vampire eight years later. Okay. He's supposed to be in Circle of Threes, whatever that is. 
and he's been in a few shorts, and that is it. That negotiation scene was what flat out sold G-Baby on me forever. But the kid legit got me feeling emotional, not just when he got killed at the end, where I very nearly cried, but even in the moments when the kids are distributing the t-shirts and he's the runt of the litter and biggest shirt down to smallest shirt by numbers and he's the tiniest kid on the team and so he never gets one. He's also too young to play, I guess, so technically he shouldn't be on the team anyway. But the way he just looks at Keanu Reeves with those like puppy dog eyes, you can see the single tears. Dear God, man, I am not made of stone. <laughs> and that wonderful payoff at the end when there's no more shirts in the box. Nope. Turns around. Everyone's sorry for him. G-Baby. And he's got this little shirt with number one on it. Yeah. It would have been pretty great if that shirt was too small, though. <laughs> Coach, it doesn't fit. <laughs> That'd be funny if it was. Yeah. It's either too big or too small. Still, Connor, what are you doing? But I said in the intro, I like those uniforms, green and gray, kick-ass colors together. I got colors like that for us a couple years ago for our team, although it does lean more fluorescent green than it does anything else, just because that's pretty much what we had to go with. But I think the colors are pretty cool and what we have as well. I wanted it to be more of a green and gray theme. I don't think I was thinking about hardball, but I didn't have pinstripes in mind for us. These uniforms are awesome. The shirts they wear early on when there's nothing at all for GA Baby are terrible. And of course, Connor complains about that at one point. Why do our kids get these terrible hand-me-down type shirts? And these other teams like the Buwas and these other teams have actual full-on uniforms. And it isn't until the end that Connor puts in, I think, his own money. Well, no, I guess it's Duffy sponsoring right. the team to get the uniforms because you see him helping out with the uniforms. By the way, that guy, Graham Beckel or Graham Beckel, I'm guessing it's Beckel. He's one of the bad cops in LA Confidential. That's where I saw him. I really love the moment where Connor's breaking down what he owes to the barber. And Duffy, who is owed money too, and he wants it, and who's threatening violence against Connor, who'd earlier beaten himself up, I can kick my own ass, punches car windows, puts his own window through the guy's glass. But Duffy's not somebody to mess with either, but he's the one that says, keep paying the barber. Because he's being a friend to Connor. He's saying, look, I want my money. I'm mad at you right now. But the more important thing is pay off the mob guy. That was a really good moment. I thought Graham Beckel and Keanu played that one quite well. But that's also the dark stuff of this film that's about, yeah. of course, a gambling addict. It's almost like two separate films. Exactly. He's only coaching this team because he needs money. But that stuff could have been a tough movie that Scorsese might have directed, actually, the gambling stuff. But him coaching the kids, and they're tough kids, too, from a tough neighborhood. And we're all on the ground because we don't get shot. And then poor Jefferson Albert Tibbs gets beat up. Well, that was dark also. He gets his ass kicked for no good reason at all. And then, of course, the thing at the end with G-Baby getting killed was devastating. But this is such a dark story in what is also fun and often, if not funny, at least charming. Yeah. Man, tough existence for these kids. And, of course, for Connor himself, he's in more danger than they are a lot of the time. But then I guess they're always in danger, aren't they? Because look what happens at the end when G-Baby gets killed. But this is the future that some of these kids have. And you look at the potential they have, both as athletes... And Kofi, for example, analyzing that book the way he does in A Wrinkle in Time. Probably not what his teacher expected him to say, but yeah, okay, that makes sense. She lost her dad, and she can't get over it. But get over it, kid, because this is what happens, is what he's saying effectively, and proving that he actually read that book. And by the way, about Kofi, at the very end, they won the championship. We don't see them in that last game, but we know they do. But only eight kids are pictured holding trophies. So Keanu played? <laughs> They say nine show up. We know nine show up. When Kofi comes, they have nine players because that whole scene at the end is we only have eight players, so we can't play. Oh, but then Kofi comes, even though his brother got buried, I think the day before or something. But anyway, I guess they had enough to play. But for some reason, one of the kids isn't there. Maybe he had to run home. I don't know. Maybe he got killed in a drive-by. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. But also in that last, <laughs> it's dark, isn't it? Fits the tone. But also in that last shot, when they're all holding their trophies and Connor is not smiling. God, Keanu, why don't you smile once in a while? Kofi is holding two trophies, so he must have won the team MVP after all. Pitchers aside, he was meant to be their most talented player. You raised like three elements of this movie that individually I want to touch on a little bit. The running gag of the kid whose name always gets messed up in the movie, and I can't remember it now. Jefferson Albert Tibbs. He gets the first uniform when they get those cool uniforms at the end. You know what number he is? 35. You know who 35 was in Chicago at that time? Frank Thomas. The big hurt. Who we heard on the radio earlier in the movie was in the midst of an 11-game slump going into ah. whatever game the kids went to see with Keanu. That was a nice payoff that you just mentioned at the end because everybody gets this kid's name wrong throughout the entire movie. That's the whole gag. And then towards the end, he actually gets it correct when he hands the kid his shirt. But yeah, of course, Keanu keeps the kids late during that one practice until after dark because he's waiting for... 
Tiki to show up with some tickets at the field and Tiki's late. So then this poor kid has to walk home in the dark and it looks like he's walking through a bloody war zone. There was like an earned out car literally on fire in the front lawn of this place for some reason. The poor kid is trying to walk home with his pizza and eventually drops it, makes a run for it, gets stopped and his ass kicked and his book's stolen. That to me was, I guess not the darkest thing because G-Baby dying was for sure the darkest thing. But that was darker to me than even seeing Keanu walk the kid home and be told everyone's sitting on the floor because you want to be below window level. If you're a 12-year-old kid going to the movies to watch this, how do you interpret that? I think that just goes right over your head. I don't even think you process what that's trying to get across. You know what happens? White kids don't get it and black kids say, I get it. Oh yeah, that's life for yeah, I get it. Even if they aren't living in that neighborhood, if their lives aren't that bad, they can relate more, meaning the black kids can than the white kids can. And you mentioned before, Hispanics probably can too. Oh yeah, early on too. When two of the kids, and I don't remember which ones it was, that were just walking together, going home again. And there was gunshots in the background and they both in unison go, nine millimeter. They've heard so many gunshots that even in the distance, they can just tell what gun is firing the bullets because they're so familiar with it. And they aren't scared either. They just keep walking and they look at each other like it's a game. Who can guess the gun right? It's one of those things, again, I think washes over kids. But as an adult, you're listening to them, you're thinking, oh man, that is also dark because these poor kids have been so inundated with this sound. And they're all like 9, 10, 11 years old that they can just call out the type of gun that's making the shots by its sound just that quickly. It one-dimensionalizes the kids a little bit in that they have no life outside of trying to make their way through Warzone and playing baseball or going to school. But I thought it was effective in trying to demonstrate they don't have a lot of opportunity in their lives to have fun because they just don't have much. But one of the things you did touch on that I want to delve into has to do with Keanu's character himself. You mentioned Duffy, who I agree was a great character, even if he had some terrible slang usage, like, don't show up here until you got the cabbage, kid! Okay, it's not 1920s <laughs> Chicago. Let's chill with the cabbage stuff. See here now. Yeah, exactly. Where's our dough? Give me my dough. <laughs> but for a guy that Keanu's character owes something like five or six grand to demonstrate that kind of emotional connection to Keanu, he's a legitimate friend and he's looking out for him to the extent he can or can afford to, was a nice moment. And maybe you're right. Maybe this would have been really great as two almost separate movies and one just being kind of like a Scorsese-esque investigation into the Connor O'Neill character because I wanted to know so much more about who Connor was. Is he just like an idiot or is he a smart guy that's fallen into a really desperate circumstance? I'm not sure. At various points he seems smart and at various points he's made to sound very stupid, especially to Diane Lane's character. That's Keanu for you. That might just be Keanu. Is he truly a gambling addict? Because again, if he is, and we're made to believe that he is for most of the movie, but then he says, no, nah, I'm done. I'm quitting cold turkey because I want to help these kids instead. If you're a gambling addict, I don't think that's how that really works. You don't just suddenly say, I'm just done with it. He could. I don't like when people say that somebody can't get over alcoholism without going to AA and finding God. I don't like when people say you can't kick drugs unless you do it our way, or you can't do this, can't do that unless you do it our way. But the odds are this guy is going to gamble again. For one thing, it's not like Elizabeth is offering him a job to be a well-paid athletics coordinator. And he's probably going to look at that and say, I could make thousands of dollars in one night by making one smart bet. I'm going to do this one thing. Hey, Tiki, I haven't talked to you in a couple of months or even a couple of years. I got a bet idea on the Bulls next week or the Blackhawks. I'll lay down this one bet and I'll go back to do my job with the kids. But then he gets in Hawk again. I could see that happening. I could see that happening too. That's another reason why I wanted a little bit more information about Keanu's character. The opening scenes of this movie confused the heck out of me. And I legitimately thought maybe I'd loaded Constantine by accident because the opening sequence <laughs> of the movie is this dark, rainy, rainy. You've got the credits sort of filtering away in a creepy, smoky way. He's drinking. He goes to a church to pray. Yeah, he's soaking wet. He's dressed in like this John Constantine suit. Are you looking for help? He's like, no, I'm praying for the bulls to cover the spread or whatever he says. So at that point, of course, I know I'm watching the right movie, but it's setting a very dark tone. And it's a tone that, as far as Keanu's character goes anyway, is never really paid off. We're almost like told he's in trouble, right? Because Duffy says, I had to pass your debt on to the mob, essentially. And Keanu's like, am I going to get a Goomba coming to break my thumbs? And we're told how dangerous the barber is. And we get his knucklehead showing up at Keanu's apartment. But then even the negotiation with the barber's guy, it's, I'm going to break your skull for the $6,000. No, no, wait, I'll pay you back. Okay, give me $1,000. How about seven fifty? And the guy's like, yeah, all right. It was the most laid back <laughs> negotiation without any roughing up of Keanu at all. So I never really got a sense of the true danger that Keanu was in. 
aside from beating himself up, he never sustained any harm. I never got a, a real sense of how he got in the situation he is. Oh, I don't know about that. I think we get the sense he's in this situation because he's not making very smart bets. And at the end, he has that big bet, the Chicago-Miami game, where he bets on the Bulls, and they only win on a long shot. That was the other problem, right? Because when you're a better, a sports better, gambler, whatever, you're typically one of two breeds. You're either the person that's betting on instinct because you want the rush, you got to feel the adrenaline of having it all ride, in which case you're just doing whatever feels right to you, or you're the hyper-analytical person that says, all right, well, the trends are this, they're on this kind of streak or whatever. He's that, I think, more. He seems to be. Yeah, because he says the Bulls have never covered at home against Miami since Jordan left. But then he switches his bet. He places the bet and says, no, I'm going to take the Bulls instead. But why? That's totally contrary to what you said. I have no sense that you're this guy that's just out there for the rush. The subtext is he's betting on Chicago black people, maybe. He's like he's betting on his own Oh, God. <laughs> I bet that's where it is. Why else would he change his bet? Exactly. He goes against his instinct. I think it's because he's saying, I'm betting on the hometown team. And the hometown team at that point for him are his kids. And now also the Bulls. You might be right, but if that was the intention of the filmmaker, A, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Not impossible, but a bit of a stretch if they're trying to send that message across by doing that. I did quite enjoy the Friends moment, by the way, when he goes to the actual investment firm, which is called, what, Smith and something? I should know this because they say it so many times in the movie. Yeah, I forget now, too. You saw the movie last night. I saw it last week, so I forget what it's called. It's too bland. The blah, 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 firm. He goes to see this guy who I guess is an old friend of his and says, Yeah, Jimmy. Yeah, I need six grand or 12 grand in this case. And I like this guy's response to say, Got to bury your dad again because I gave you five grand for that. And so did this other guy. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. okay, at least you do get the sense that Connor's been out hustling everybody that will talk to him for money. And he's been doing it for a long time, apparently. I wanted a little bit more understanding about the guy because once he takes the role as the coach, you don't have to be happy about it because you're getting paid not very much money to coach kids and you're not a kid's guy. He ain't no good with kids, man. Why is he the coach of this team? Aside from the fact that he just needs money and maybe he's under the thumb of this buddy of his, was he a baseball player before? Is it just because he knows sports because he's a gambler? I think one of the things that's missing in this movie, but it would have been fun to analyze, Pep and I do what happens next. Well, this would be what could have happened in the alternative universe oh, yeah. where Connor does need money. Jimmy would have had to coach this team. Obviously, it is a public service type of thing. For his firm to coach a team in the ARCHA, A-R-C-H-A, Youth Baseball League. I couldn't find what that means, by the way. I looked it up. I don't know what A-R-C-H-A stands for. Anyway. And all the teams, by the way, in that league are named after tribes in Africa. The Kumbas, the Buas, Buawas, however that's pronounced. But Jimmy would have had to coach these kids. And it must be just lucky coincidence that Connor comes <laughs> along and is desperate. Because Jimmy is also saying he's going away. Maybe he doesn't go anywhere and he's lying to Connor about the fact he's going on business. But if he is going on business, then how would that have worked? And also the team doesn't even have enough players because Kofi and I think it's Ray Ray or Andre aren't able to play because they're doing bad in school. But once they come in, and of course GBB comes too, but he's not even one of the players, then they have 10 players. They only had eight. And then of course that's paid off at the end, but they only have eight again because Kofi's not there because of his brother dying and Jamal's been kicked off the team. And that Mighty Ducks-esque technicality by what's it a few months although michael b jordan one of the things about him is he does tower over these other kids it's not he's like he's g baby yeah. size and he's too old but one thing about this movie that doesn't pay off very well i guess but then a lot of sports movies have done this a lot of kids sports movies have done this mighty ducks certainly did which is these guys aren't good baseball players they're not dreadful but they're not good baseball players and then when he starts coaching them he finally wakes up and coaches them a little bit by hitting a ball hard at kofi for yapping <laughs> off new rule Nobody could say anything bad about anybody else in this team. And from that point on, they don't. And from that point on, they seem to get better awfully fast. Jamal takes one off the head in that same practice and everyone laughs. Ah, it's no problem, man. You'll shake it off. Well, they were really bad the first game. The first game they played, they lost 16 to 1 in five innings. Mm -hmm. And they weren't just bad. They were bad to the point where a kid grounded a ground ball correctly, but then threw it to the pitcher because he didn't know where to throw the ball. They don't even know the basics of baseball. They were not going to the ship at that point. They were not going to the ship at that point. What they were missing was... A montage, montage. I was shocked they didn't have a training True. montage. It goes basically from game one to the practice you described, where incidentally, Keanu Reeves looks like, and we said this about him when he was in the replacements, he looks like he knows how to play baseball. The guy knows how to shag balls. He knows how to swing the bat. But they have that one practice, and then the next game, and as of the next game, they are lights out. They are just the best of the best. Yeah. How? Through the power of positivity? 
Kofi could always play. Miles could always pitch. We just didn't know it yet. He wanted to pitch, but he had to use his Walkman to listen to Big Papa, which as later on, D.B. Sweeney playing Matt Highland, who's the Buwas coach, points out as illegal. And yeah, he's being an anal dick and he wants the advantage, every advantage he could possibly get. But I thought the same thing. I've always thought the same thing seeing this movie, which is that does seem dangerous for a kid to be wearing a Walkman on the field. But then the great payoff there, this movie is pretty good with the setup and payoff, is at the end when he's scared to come in and pitch to one batter, as it turns out. He's a relief pitcher. He's the Dennis Eckersley of this situation. Or I guess Lee Smith, if you're going to go with the Chicago black guy routine. But when Connor brings in Miles, he's being a good coach. Miles, you're great. But then, of course, Miles is still worried. So he starts doing, meaning Connor starts doing the arms waving in the air of the song that the kid was listening to all that time. Then so do the fans, which is a sweet moment, but also makes me wonder, why are kids being encouraged to get off on, well, get off on, whatever, listen to, get inspiration from this Big Papa song, which has a lyric in it, which is, I see some ladies who should be having my baby, baby. It sounds like a cool song. I've heard it a few times over the years. They do play it a little bit in the movie. But I don't know the kids should be listening to that song. And also the Walkman thing on the field. Highland may be a dick, but he's not wrong. I agree with you. And the Big Papa inclusion in the movie always struck me as a little strange. Like you described, the shtick of this kid who just is wearing the headphones because he can't take the heckling. When he first comes onto the field... Not just was the other team heckling Miles, but the other parents were also heckling Miles. Yes. This is like a 10-year-old kid. Rally, rally, the pitcher is a Sally. Yeah. Woo, 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 woo. You should be ashamed of yourselves. And then Connor and the team, they start swaying and singing Big Papa. And you're right. They only sing about, I think, one set of lyrics in the chorus. But the entire song is just about going to the club, getting high, and getting laid. I get nine, even nine, 10, 11-year-old kids. I listened to stuff like that when I was that age. What I didn't get is when, again, the parents that are supporting Miles, they start singing the song to him too, including the lyrics that say, I see a girl, she's going to have my baby. Mm -hmm. That's your 10-year-old son on the mound, and you're singing to him about how he's going to go to the club, see a woman that he's going to go bang and knock up? I don't think that their virginal, well, maybe not virginal, but their holy teacher, Elizabeth Wilkes, would know that lyric or those lyrics. (laughs) But she seems to. I would love it if Diane Lane was a secret biggie head. Not her character, Diane Lane specifically. The actual actress. actress. By the way, speaking of her, and she's fine in this movie, and she and Keanu seem to have some decent chemistry together. The two of them help the score factor in this movie from the look standpoint. He's always been a beautiful man, still is now. And she is up there with some of the best looking women in Hollywood history. And they do have some romantic chemistry together. The movie is very chaste because it's a kid's movie. Most movies we've ever covered have been that way because they're sports movies. They're not usually very sexual. But at least we have good-looking people in the two starring roles. And Diane Lane in the early 2000s, wow. It's not like a particularly scorable movie from a number of perspectives. Like, never mind the fact that it's focused primarily on a bunch of kids that are somewhere between the ages of 9 and 11. But yeah, the subject matter itself alternates between kind of goofy and pretty dark. So it's not that kind of movie for sure. Diane Lane is fine not given a ton to do in this role rock solid rock solid good support yeah good support okay there you go but like you said earlier she's a necessary part of their story for once though she's not just a girlfriend or a wife she's a huger part of their life than he is because she's an important teacher in their life and one of the ways they communicate that i thought relatively effectively too was how they introduce miss wilkes her character to keanu is portraying her as this witch because she keeps calling their parents because she cares about them and wants them to keep up on their schoolwork. All they have to do is read a single book and she'll lay off and let them play baseball and they wouldn't even do that. It was kind of a nice way through the lens of how a kid perceives a teacher to introduce her as a caring person, essentially, I guess. But she's not a shrew at all. No, no. A, because she's dying lame, but B, because she seems like a very reasonable, cool person, actually. She seems like she'd be a teacher that they should love. Yeah, like I said, read a book. Please, one not very long book and you can play baseball. The bar is low. The bar is very low, guys. <laughs> Creep. Just over it, please. And Keanu, I like him a lot in most things, and I thought he was pretty good in this. With the one exception of the moment when he's meant to lose his cool and be under too much stress and just flip out on the kids. And it reminded me more so of the Seinfeld episode where George is trying to break up with one of his girlfriends and she just keeps telling him no because she doesn't believe him or isn't buying it. And that's how I felt about Keanu. No! Don't you hear me? I'm quit! I'm out! 
I don't want you anymore. I'm not gambling, and I'm not coaching. I'm not gambling, and I'm not coaching. Okay, fine, let's go watch a Cubs game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll go pay hundreds of dollars to take you to see yeah. front row seats almost <laughs> to see the Cubs play in what clearly is Detroit, by the way. There's no way that was supposed to be in Chicago. If they were trying to pretend that was Chicago, then they expect their fans not to know. That's meant to be Chicago, right? Oh, was it? I don't know if it's even Comiskey, because it's Sammy Sosa who's clearly on screen. Must have been a green screen thing he did for them briefly in this movie. Yeah. And they're big fans, and that's cool. But that's also when he finally truly bonds with them, because he's always been pushing back against this, doesn't want to do it. He clearly says he doesn't want to do it. But then for whatever reason, goes from that to, I'm going to take them and pay hundreds of dollars to watch this Cubs game, and then we're good. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be Comiskey. I assumed it was because they didn't have the recognizable outfield of Wrigley. Okay, well, they're in Chicago. That was Detroit, though, for sure, where they shot it. Maybe oh, it's yeah, not yeah. supposed to be the Cubs against the Tigers, but that was definitely Detroit where that game was. I would believe that 100%. Keanu, I liked him well enough in this, and I thought he paid off the end of the movie pretty effectively. But directors, man, do not ask him for emotional range. You're not going to get emotional range out of Keanu Reeves. Just not. He's miscast, especially when it comes to him being negative. He's really great, actually. You talk about emotion. The funeral sequence at the end, Brian Robbins directed this. We haven't said this until now, but I didn't like Varsity Blues. Maybe we'll cover that someday. We did cover Ready to Rumble. That was him? The year before this movie, he did Ready to Rumble. Ooh, and wow. he's done a lot of TV. He also made this movie with Michael Tallon, his regular producing partner. But when he asks Keanu to give a nice speech at the funeral, the way that's edited too, because we don't know they won the game. G-Baby, you're up. And the next thing we see is him driving Kofi and G-Baby home. And they all play it pretty mondo. It's not like they're giving away that they lost or that they won. In fact, you'd probably guess that they lost the way they're playing that scene. We find out later during the funeral speech he gives, a wonderful speech, I think, that they won the game and G-Baby's the one who did it. If that first baseman just stayed even remotely close to where he should have been, he would have either caught that little bleeder that the kid hit at him or caught an easy one-hopper and tagged at the base and end of inning. But also, too, it makes it sound like if G-Baby didn't get a hit with two out, our hope's dwindling. <laughs> But you guys were tied and you were the home team. You would have played extra innings if he didn't get a hit right there. Or he could have drawn a walk. He didn't have to get a hit. But anyway, when he hits the ball at the first baseman stay where he should have been, then that wouldn't have happened. But it is really cool that this little kid who never played once gets one pinch hit and wins the game. He's Kurt Gibson in his one game. <laughs> and then they happen to win. Well, it's not even the championships, it turns out. It's almost like the, what is the it? Semis. The Miracle on Ice thing. Yeah, It's the right. semis. It's like the Miracle on Ice where they don't beat the Soviets for the gold medal. They beat them to get to the gold medal. That whole thing, I like I've said, I've watched on YouTube lots of times, so I know it very well. But when Keanu is asked to speak by Perla, who's Kofi and G-Baby's mother, his speech is quite good. So you say he can't deliver emotion, but in that way he can. It's more a matter of him being angry yes. and negative, which I don't think Keanu does very well. Even though if you know about Keanu's life, he probably should be somebody who can access those emotions, but he isn't very good at doing that as an actor, even though he's had some terrible things happen in his life. But when he can just talk about G-Baby, how he... Raise the world. I swear, he may be a better person in that place. I'm almost losing it right now. I really like the way that was written and performed and directed. And you know how much you care about this kid, maybe more than the rest of them. Yeah. Because he was always in the dugout with the kid, too. He would have been literally closer to G-Baby in all those games than anyone else. I think you hit the nail on the head. I also agree with you entirely. Maybe it's too much of a broad statement to say, don't get Keanu for emotion, but like fiery display of emotion is maybe the better way of putting it, because that is what he's incapable of for sure. I liked the way that they did not explicitly show you that final at bat, the way they let Keanu's speech show it to you. I think it added to the emotion of the moment. I just wish they had followed through on that thinking with the very end of the movie. Because G-Baby's funeral, you said it at the beginning, I'd never seen this movie. I was shocked at how emotional I felt watching that whole sequence, recounting the game and then the funeral itself. Very well done and very affecting. And this is a movie where coming into that moment... To a certain extent, it's formulaic, and you know that they're going to try to get some sort of emotional rise out of you. By the time you're halfway through the movie, you're playing through this trough. They're going to try to rise it up at the end and get Keanu to do something with the team that gets emotion out of you. You don't know it's going to be specifically this funeral. In fact, that shocked me when it happened. It worked anyway. I 100% bought into the emotional crescendo of this movie. They get through the funeral, and the kids have a meeting with Keanu, and they say, yeah, I know the league said we don't have to play the final game because of everything that's happened, but we want to for G-Baby, which is, again, a nice touch. The final game starts. Keanu gives a speech about showing up, which you referenced earlier. And then the camera, as the game is beginning, sort of pans out, and you'll see the game beginning. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's how they are going to end it. I thought it was just like a fade to black and credits. And I thought, you know what? That's a nice touch. I like that a lot. Because really, within the context of this movie, the result of that game, as we've discussed in other movies, 
whether they win or lose, it doesn't matter. The whole point is... They showed up. They showed up. The team came together. They helped Keanu. Keanu helped them. That's all of the feel-good messaging of this movie. They don't have to win the championship. Of course, they get the montage at the end of them holding the trophies, which I'm like, yeah, I didn't really care. I just had a thought. I brought it up earlier, and it says it online about how there's only eight kids pictured, plus Keanu holding the team trophy, and they all get their little trophies. But I wonder if maybe that was a reshoot later on, and maybe one of the kids wasn't available for some reason. Oh, yeah. I wonder if they screened the ending and then some studio exec was like, no, we need closure. We need to know that they won or something. You're right, though. We didn't actually need closure because he literally just said seconds before, the most important part is that we're here. How do we get here? That's all that really matters in the end is we got to the championship game. That we even just got better is the real win. That's right. And an important part of this movie is that he's going to be in their lives next week and next month and next year because he's going to work at their school and he's going to work with them as an athletics coordinator, gym teacher, whatever you want to call it. This isn't just this baseball season then it's over with and you never see them again, like in Friday Night Lights, where at the end of that movie, we know that Billy Bob Thornton is not going to coach most of these kids anymore. He's literally taking names off the wall, and most of them are not going to continue on in school. But Keanu can keep on working with these kids and help them as human beings and probably coach their team as well for years to come. Now that you say the reshoot thing, if I were Connor O'Neill, I would wager money that was a reshoot <laughs> nice situation, touch. that that was some sort of executive input or test audience input that said, we got to know if they won. We got to know because that panning out shot of the baseball diamond at the end after Keanu's speech about showing up and that was a real victory. It fit together so well. And the photo sequence at the end of it felt tacked on and needless. At least it's brief, but they also did what they wanted to do when they were at the pizza party was go to the ship. They went to the ship. Even if they didn't win the ship, they went. Where did they go, Ryan? The ship. <laughs> I always thought it was shit to bring us back to the beginning of the podcast. Okay, before we wrap, I haven't even done any of the numbers. I'll briefly go through those. We'll now be reminded of Glory Road, our last episode, because the critical numbers are pretty similar in this sense. The critics didn't like this movie. They didn't like Glory Road either. 41% of Rotten Tomatoes. That's it. I get why. I get the why movie's too. very flawed. We've pointed out why is a cliche arc in some ways. It did surprise me that they went to the point of killing a kid. Yeah. But we also see Shocked. the way it's edited is also cool. The way that's done, it's not the game and then he's killed. We find out that he gets killed and then we find out what he did in the game. And then Keanu at the funeral, all that stuff's good. The audience is though 70%, so 7-0. Pretty similar to Glory Road's splits, which is a failure from the critics, but a passing grade and a pretty strong passing grade for Glory Road from the audiences. Hardball was 62nd at the 2001 U.S. box office. Fast and the Furious, which we covered last year when we thought maybe the most recent sequel was supposed to come out, but that got pushed because of the pandemic to next year now. I don't even know. That was 14th. Ali was 41st. That was the prestige release or one of them that year. And Keanu was nominated for a Razzie for this, but it was also with Sweet November, a movie he did with Charlize Theron. He worked with some beautiful women that year, Charlize Theron and Diane Lane and two very talented women as well. That's a true rom-com, or at least a rom, maybe not so much com <laughs> movie he did that year. He's been nominated, I believe, for several Razzies, or at least more than one Razzie over the years. But we talked about how he doesn't come across as a cynical negative actor, and yet his most famous character of the recent era isn't necessarily cynical and angry and all that kind of stuff, but he's a murderer and a killer, John Wick. Yeah, but again, John Wick, he's not cynical. He's, at least by the time the John Wick movies begin, he's actually kind of hopeful, and that's the whole inciting incident is the death of that hope they killed his dog don't kill the dog man don't kill the dog yeah it doesn't surprise me at all that critics didn't like this movie if i had to guess for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about be it elements that felt jarring or weren't very well explored or something like that but it is the kind of movie that if you don't think too hard about some of these elements i've lost myself in it pretty quickly and it felt like the 90 hour 45 just flew by which is kind of shocked me given the specific storyline involved here. I would probably rate it, you said what, the seven of 10 was the audience score? Yes. I was thinking like a six and a half to seven was going to be my gut instinct score. So that makes sense to me because there's definite flaws, but we've both talked about how effective this movie is at what it's trying to do ultimately. So I can't argue with it. And that. we enjoyed and it. We both enjoyed it. If I was going to go emotions and be fully honest and not be a critic, it would be more like eight and a half. I just love this movie so much. I didn't always love it. It's one of those that grew on me more and more. But seven and a half is probably a fair actual grade to give it if I was truly reviewing this movie. Well, I am reviewing it. But anyway, you know what I'm saying here. It's emotionally affecting. And for a guy like me who's mostly dead inside, <laughs> this is one of the few movies, this and Field of Dreams, maybe in the entirety of our podcast. If I ever rewatch this movie, I'm going to feel every bit as emotionally affected by the G-Baby stuff. 
I know that going in. It's the same way with Field of Dreams. Every time I watch that movie, I know what's coming, but I'm going to feel as teary-eyed every time Ray Kinsella says, you want to have a catch? Hey, G-Baby, you want to catch a bullet? Oh, dear. Oh. No. <laughs> no, Ryan. What have you done? Because I like this movie, I could say that. Oh, no. Oh, that kid is so cute and charming. He's great. Okay, well, on that awful note of me making a bad joke there at the end, what was like, what was your beer like? Was uh, it tasty? It was every bit as sweet and rich as Keanu Reeves' performance in this movie. And schizophrenic. That is a good word for it. This movie's a little schizophrenic, and so is that performance for him. And I don't really love his long-term future in this world, but I love the fact that he's, hey, he says it, got to show up. He's going to start showing up now. He's going to start trying to be a real person. But I also think he's going to bet again, and it may not be good, because... The Fink is out there, too. We didn't even talk about Mark Margolis, who was in The Wrestler. And, of course, he is Hector from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yes, that's right. That's where I know him from. But he's out there. The Barber's out there. And even Duffy's out there. And I think Connor may come back to those guys. Oh, I don't want to end this movie on a bad note, but I have to. Because I think Connor may be talking to those guys again. And not just to talk about the weather or the baseball scores, but to talk about betting on the weather or the baseball scores. Yeah. Or basketball scores. And, by the way, my water is tasting pretty good. I'm into water now, so... Let's end this episode on April the 1st. Baseball opening day was today. Let's hope that everything happened because we record this middle of March right now. But let's hope that there weren't any COVID problems. Baseball is going to try to be normal this year. I've been reading they're going to have fans and everything. So I think they will. We're going to do baseball again, though, in two weeks. It will be April the 15th, which is Jackie Robinson Day. So we're taking a hint from the heavens about that symbiosis. And we're going to talk about the beloved Chadwick Boseman playing the groundbreaking Jackie Robs in 42. I know there's some issues with that one, too, but I also know it's a pretty effective film and some good moments and probably some effectively emotional ones. So we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. Please subscribe to us wherever you got this podcast. and You can find us just about everywhere that you get podcasts. And we're also on Podbean. All 74, I think I said, episodes are on there for free. So take her easy, you cucumbers. I remain blown away by your ability to take her easy. Go to the ship, Cucumbas, and also go to the shit. <laughs>